last few years, we have heard a great deal about self-driving cars, but autonomy doesn't just stop there. There's a great deal of research and interest in autonomous delivery in general, of people and goods, on land, sea, and air. Imagine an air taxi service that gets you from point A to B and cuts your morning commute down to just minutes without a pilot. Or imagine a container ship or tanker sailing the seas without the help of a trusty captain at the helm. And maybe you've already jokingly talked about how it would be cool to have your tacos delivered to you by drone delivery. Autonomous delivery is a rapidly expanding area of research, and companies that are in the business of moving people or things around on this planet are eagerly working to make this a reality. Welcome to another episode of the ICT Podcast. I'm your host, Vishal Sandesara, and on today's episode, we talk about autonomous delivery, why now, who is working on it, and what can we expect in the coming years. Joining me in the studio today are Kevin Schaefer and Andy Koo. Kevin is a guru on subject matter and is a member of technical staff and solutions architect at Incutel, and Andy is a member of the investment team. Andy, Kevin, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Uh, you're very welcome. Well, let's get started. First of all, for people who don't know or have not heard of uh, what autonomous delivery is, let's take a step back for a moment and define. What are we talking about when we think about autonomous delivery? Yeah, it's a great question because we ultimately came up with this term a couple months ago as a catch-all phrase for lots of areas of technology we're looking at. If I were to say the term autonomous delivery to some random person on the street, probably the immediate thing that comes to mind is Amazon. And we're far broader than that. We're talking about vehicles, drones, even ships. So even if I mention, you know, a self-driving car, probably the first thing that somebody thinks about is Tesla, or maybe if they're a little more well-versed, they may even talk about Waymo. But ultimately, what we're talking about is large-scale transport of people and goods via some autonomous solution. And what is it, why is it that now is a good time for any of these organizations, companies, or, or you know, large or small companies to even start thinking through uh, why autonomous delivery should be a part of their business model? I think you've heard in the news a lot of um, eye-popping numbers when it comes to investments in self-driving cars. Um, unfortunately, in the news, we've also heard a lot of um, news about cars who have um, kind of gone off the road and who've killed people. Um, and while this has been eye-popping from a news perspective, the truth is um, self-driving cars, for example, is something where it could be very beneficial to society. Um, there's a stat which is 40,000 people die every year on the road um, from accidents. And so there's a lot of um, interest in this technology because it could potentially save many, many lives. And so the confluence of societal um, pressures plus investment dollars plus media um, has really um, surged a lot of interest in terms of self-driving cars in particular. Um, I think what Kevin mentioned before, which was let's broaden the conversation to not only self-driving cars, but also self-flying airplanes and self-piloting boats. And I think there's a lot of um, interest in areas that we often don't hear about, which we'll talk about on this podcast. And, well, a question for Kevin. Um, you know, it, it seems like uh, we would be remiss uh, on the ICT podcast and this day and age not to at least have one mention of a buzzword, artificial intelligence, AI. Um, and when it comes to things like, you know, uh, the evolution of sensors and the, sort of the proliferation of big data and AI, how, how does all this sort of figure into where we are today with the state of affairs with autonomous delivery and, and how it may impact business plans going to the future? Yeah, it's another great question. So certainly on the back end of any sensor architecture, you're going to have AI. 
And it's not necessarily AI that's the challenge moving forward. The really necessary first step is figuring out that right recipe or a combination of sensors on the front end. So you're going to have cameras, LIDARs, radars, combinations thereof, maybe some additional sensors I haven't even thought of yet. And then on the back end, it's really figuring out a good neural network to process all that data to ultimately result in what your inference is. And so when you're out in the wild, that inference is going to be, do I continue moving forward? Do I turn right? Do I avoid this object? Is this object a threat? Um, in the drone and ship space, it's a little less complicated because it's more free field operation where you're only going to encounter an object um, for brief periods of time when you're ultimately delivering a package, pulling up to a port. But again, you are going to have some sort of neural network to go through that processing. The challenge there is how do you get all that data? And that's ultimately an issue that hasn't been solved yet, and it's probably going to dictate success or failure of this industry writ large in the future. Kevin, another buzzword that gets tossed around a lot uh, is big data. Uh, it's everywhere. It's ever-increasing. There's too much of it. Does, it say, does, that, does that mantra apply in this space? Is there a plethora of, of the data that's needed, uh, you know, available to even train models to, to create sort of a ubiquity of economy in delivery? The simple answer to that question is no, the data is not in existence today. And the easiest way to explain that is go back to Andy's statistics about the number of fatalities in the United States every year. So with 40,000 fatalities, given the amount of driving that occurs in the United States, you probably have about a one in a million chance of dying yourself driving a car for an hour of driving. So think about how you need to mimic that with the self-driving system or how you'd even improve it. So to replicate that, you're probably looking at the order of magnitudes of millions of vials of real-world test data proving out that system. Well, that's possible. It's not exactly ideal. But the reality is you're not going to want to just mimic the current state of technology. You probably want an order of magnitude or two orders of magnitude improvement. And the reason for that is if you sit and think, how often you see news of a fatality due to an automobile showing up in the United States in a newspaper on any given day, it really doesn't happen. If we switch over to purely autonomous vehicles, even around 4,000 fatalities per year, that's going to be on the front page every single day because it's a robot that's killing people. So the reality is you're looking at two orders of magnitude improvement, and now you're in the realm of billions of miles of real-world test data, which is just not possible in our lifetimes. What that means is you need some amount of supplemental data, which is going to come from the synthetic data world. Right now, there is a large number of companies generating this synthetic data. The ultimate question is, is it good enough to prove out these systems? And that's really what's going to dictate success in the future. The reality also, just to piggyback on what Kevin said, human beings have a higher standard for robots than they do for human beings. And so that's that fatality number, the 40,000 fatality number is staggering if you think about it. 40,000 people every year die in car accidents. And yet if we have a standard for robots, that standard is much, much higher. I don't think human beings would tolerate um, any fatalities for self-driving cars. And so the challenge that we have is we see the promise of this technology, which could save many, many lives, um, but we are not there yet in terms of getting the technology to the point where we can have flawless self-driving cars. And I think that's a challenge for startups, the challenge for policymakers, and the challenge for VCs who are funding these startups. I see. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the global landscape. Uh, let, maybe we'll start with uh, just the market in the United States, uh, and then we'll move out sort of beyond our borders and into the, into the rest of the globe. You both have spent a lot of time uh, looking at the current state of affairs in both uh, developments, you know, the growth of startups in space and the 
sort of way that incumbents uh, across the globe are using or, or researching this technology. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about uh, Andy, a little bit about where all the money is going, at least domestically, and then we can talk internationally thereafter. Yeah, the money it depends on what platform you're talking about. Um, if we break out the platform by land, sea, and air, um, a lot of the money in land, so self-driving cars, for example, a lot of the money is still flowing in the United States. And you're seeing a lot of technology and a lot of progress happening in the United States. Um, so when you hear about Google's Waymo project, when you hear about um, a partnership between Cruise and GM, those are all American companies and a lot of dollars are flowing into American companies. Interestingly, when we talk about other platforms, and very specifically Air, there's a lot of activity that's happening outside of the United States, um, specifically in parts of Europe, like Germany, and in China. Um, one of the things that we'll talk about later in the podcast, I think, is uh, self-flying cars and air taxis. And because of um, a lot of kind of regulatory issues, China and Germany are leading the way. There's a company in China called Ehang. There's a company in Germany called Volocopter, and they are already um, taxing people and ferrying people from place to place in major cities in Germany and Singapore and in Guangzhou, China. And so we're starting to see a lot of activity investment dollars going into, um, Chinese dollars going into investments in the airspace. Um, and then when we look at and see, um, there's also another interesting dynamic, which is a lot of um, larger companies are, are playing in this area. Um, there's a lot of shipping companies. There are companies in the Nordic region um, that have a lot of experience in terms of freight transfer for, for boats. And so we're seeing a lot of activity, a lot of dollars in the Nordic regions, especially driven by large companies who are trying to pilot boats autonomously. And what is it that you think, uh, the, you, know, well, you mentioned that you know, a lot of the globally there's, there's some movement and uh, then there's, there's a differential um, amongst at least the companies in the United States and, and, and internationally that, that create, there's differentials in maybe policy or regulation, perhaps dollars spend as a result. Uh, what are some of the reasons that we would we would account for some of the hindrances here? I, we always hear a lot about, especially in the AI space, we hear about privacy and security of your data. Uh, is that is that a concern, or are there other concerns that sort of make it that's a little tougher, slower in the United States market? On the on the self-driving car side, um, I think one of the main barriers is regulations, and um, just as a slight history lesson for um, in the United States, as many of us know. Um, we live in uh, largely a federalist society, meaning there's the federal government who sets laws, um, but a lot of the powers are um, relegated by, by design to the states. And so, for example, with self-driving cars, the safety standards for cars are set by federal bodies. And so uh, the Department of Transportation determines um, safety standards for cars. However, with regards to operations of cars, those are largely set by states. So for example, if you have a driver's license in California, California dictates what you can or cannot do in terms of what you can or cannot drive. And that's gonna be different from other states. And so you see a super interesting dynamic where some parts of self-driving cars, which are the safety mechanisms for cars, are determined at a federal level, but how you actually operate those cars are determined by, by states, which is a patchwork of different rules and regulations. And so those two dynamics sometimes um, butt up against each other. And so you have cars that want to operate in different states, 
And certain states like Arizona are very lax in terms of regulations. Other states such as California are very stringent. And so you have a, you have a lot of lumpiness in terms of what can or cannot be done. And until the federal government um, determines what it wants to do and set laws that dictate uh, what all the states will or will not do, um, you see a lot of um, difference, differences between states in terms of what can or cannot be done for self-driving cars. And then uh, I if I might add a third dynamic here too that wasn't talked about, we do have uh, labor unions in the United States. Now, thankfully, they're not operating the way they did in the Irishman, but they can and should have a spot at the table if there's you know, a possibility of displacing their job or line of work. As the union. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, operating costs. And, and by way of operating costs, we'll get into business models uh, for sea, land, and air just very briefly. Uh, but in general, when a business is thinking through autonomous delivery, um, what are the additional or, or sort of translational operational costs that need to be considered? And we'll start with maybe just land operations for delivering groceries or, or moving people around. One of the most important things to think about for self-driving cars when delivering goods or people is getting the unit economics down. Um, and so as a consumer, you have many options in terms of how to get from point A to point B. You've got many different options in terms of getting a good to your home. And what it boils down to is how expensive is it for me to move myself or move a good to my home? And the rule of thumb for moving people is about a dollar a mile. Um, when you're above a dollar a mile, um, you're going to be looking at other, other modes of operation. Um, anything below a dollar a mile, that's kind of the break-even point for self-driving cars, for ride shares. And so um, a lot of effort is being put into by these ride-sharing companies to make sure that when they have autonomous cars, they can get those costs down below a dollar a mile. What's also interesting, um, if you look at self-flying cars, air, essentially airplanes, um, those unit economics become much more complicated. And so when you have self-flying cars, you need a bunch of infrastructure. You need heliports. Those cars are much more expensive to operate. Um, the number of people that move around are much fewer. And so it's, it becomes much more expensive. And so even though the technology might be there for self-flying cars, the unit economics are not there yet. And so when I, as a consumer, have an option to take a self-flying car, which might sound cool, but it's, cost, but it's gonna cost me $20, you know what, I'd rather just take an Uber or a Lyft or just walk there. And Andy, a follow-up question. Are, is there any role that uh, you know cities or states play in terms of building out some of the additional infrastructure that may be necessary for, for maintaining and, and allowing for autonomous delivery? So as an example, I recently read a post uh, on the internet about how uh, you know, Jacksonville, Florida is thinking about creating almost what seems to be some sort of a monorail type structure that allows for autonomous vehicles to travel in unison on this sort of you know autonomous only type of uh, lane and then sort of connect to existing roadways for, for like the last you know couple blocks and delivery as, as, as a toy example. Uh, in, in what you've found or what you've researched, how, how, how good or bad of an idea is something like this, creating you know, single-use infrastructure for, for enabling this kind of delivery? I think different countries have different points of view on how to do this. Um, the United States, there's actually quite a bit of infrastructure that's not being used in the United States, um, especially in urban areas. And so we see some of these tests for self-driving, self-flying cars looking at places like LA, where they're LA and, and New York, where there actually are a lot of um, unused infrastructure. Other countries, such as, such as Singapore, where a Volocopter is doing some testing, they're actually building out hubs. Um, and they've decided 
that they're going to have a much more planned approach at helping these technologies, no pun intended, get off the ground. And so um, you see kind of uh, these countries building out infrastructure to spur more, uh, more use cases. Andy, your pun was not intended, but it was appreciated. Can I follow up of on course. the infrastructure real quick? So sure. I think it's a misnomer to talk about dedicated autonomy lanes or freeways because there's an important point that's being missed here. So I'm sure, Vishal, you're an average to terrible driver, and you're probably going to need to take up all 12 feet of a standard lane. With a full-scale autonomous deployment, those vehicles are only going to need about seven feet. So whether or not there's underutilized infrastructure within a city now, there's an opportunity to create infrastructure that's no longer needed. So you might be able to have more sidewalks. You might be able to eliminate parking spots. The complete structure of roadways that we know would change in a world where it's fully autonomous vehicles everywhere. Makes sense. And I am, in fact, a very terrible driver. I have uh, both family and uh, friends that can confess to that. So thanks for calling that out. Andy, during the course of your research, you've done uh, a lot of you know information gathering and, and uh, review of the international space. You talked a lot about China. Can you specifically comment perhaps on just the state of affairs in this space in places like Singapore, Australia, or New Zealand? Yeah, there are some really interesting things that are happening in Australia, New Zealand, and Africa, um, specifically in the drone delivery space. Um, so we talked a little bit about delivering pizzas. Um, pizzas have been delivered uh, by various companies in Australia and New Zealand. And on the medicine front, um, there's a huge need um, because of lack of infrastructure in some countries in Africa for there to be delivery of medicine. And so we're starting to see um, medicine delivery in African countries where roads are hard to come by. And so you're starting to see really the life-saving potential of these technologies in some African countries. Uh, Kevin, I want to switch the, the topic of competition to C. We haven't talked much about C just yet. We've, Andy has, has walked us through the models and the costs associated with uh, land and air. Can you tell us a little bit about the same question, operational costs, business model considerations, uh, but this time we're on the ocean? Yeah, so from a uh, sea transport standpoint, the biggest thing to think about is what's the primary cost when you're transporting an object across the Pacific Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, et cetera, et cetera. And really it comes down to fuel. You don't want a human in the loop uh, operating those vehicles purely from a fuel efficiency standpoint. The crew is not as much a concern. You can have crew delays, but really what you want is the most efficient operation of that vehicle such that you save money on fuel. It's as simple as that, which is why okay. there's tons of money going into it from uh, the Scandinavian states, which are known for their shipping. Andy, a question about regulation. In your opinion, and from what you've read, how does regulation perhaps in the drone, uh, you know, uh, airplane or self-flying uh, car space, how, how, does, how do regulations either help or hinder development and research in that area? The challenge for regulations is a lot of these technologies are coming out when these regulations uh, are trying to match and keep up with these technologies. So, for example, uh, for the airspace, the FAA, when they put out the regulations, there were no drones. There are no self-driving cars. And so they're having to do is they're having to carve out certain waivers to say, you know what, uh, now that we've got these self-flying cars, what does this mean for existing regulations? And so now they're playing um, a lot of catch up um, to try to figure out how to uh, make sure that we're all safe when we have these self-flying cars flying above our heads. You two have both spent a lot of time surveying the landscape, doing a bunch of research on the current state of affairs uh, in terms of companies, organizations, and, and researchers that are, that are adding to this space. Uh, what is it that we all, as, as 
folks uh, in the venture community have to offer uh, in this space ourselves. Um, yeah, I think it's important to think about what the transition is going to look at look like. So we're going to go from a state today where we don't really use too many autonomous vehicles, drones, things in that realm, to a state where hopefully everything is autonomous. And that's not going to be an A to B deployment. Uh, in reality, it's going to be A to Z, maybe even A to double Z. So what we offer in the interim is uh, kind of collaborative markets where there's an opportunity to make um, kind of niche businesses that ultimately are generating data that's useful for that wide-scale deployment in the future. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate also you not taking the uh, the obvious answer and saying we in the venture community can offer money. I appreciate you that didn't just take the easy answer out. Same question to you, Andy. We in the venture community can offer money. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the, the big things that we can do uh, at InQtel, um, specifically for our model, um, is to bring these technologies um, for use by um, the intelligence community and by the government overall. Um, and as we talked about, a lot of these technologies are being regulated as well. And so to the extent that we can bring these technologies to the government so that they can understand these technologies better, um, that can also maybe help with the regulations that, that there might be a possibility there. Okay. So we've been talking a lot about Autonomous delivery, uh, state of affairs, regulations, where certain companies are, are sort of, you know, betting on for operating costs. Let's talk about the future. Uh, if we had a crystal ball in front of us and we could ask it any question and get an answer out of it, I want you two to represent the answer. Are we looking at a world in the future where we'll have additional things like control towers or additional things uh, with traffic and management of these things flying around or sailing around in the ocean? Uh, or are we going to leverage things that already exist? I think it ultimately depends on what your definition of future is. Uh, in the interim, you're going to see probably numerous limited deployments where you're going to have additional infrastructure provided, whether it's a tower or something similar. Farther out in the future, in the 50-year realm, I think these are things that are going to start to be designed into whatever infrastructure there is in place, and then this is just going to become more commonplace. The transition period is ultimately going to be a strange time where something pops up and there is going to need to be a tower to support it or a, a beacon on the street. But hopefully in the future, that's no longer the case. In the United States, if we're looking at autonomous delivery, what is the first thing that I'll be able to order on the internet and see delivered uh, robotically to me? Is it going to be uh, you know, a pizza? Is it going to be maybe some stuff from you know, the internet that I bought e-commerce? Uh, or will people be delivered before any of this other stuff? It'll be food and medicine, is, is my guess. Um, in fact, that's already happening now. Um, there are some tests right now where, where um, autonomous drones are delivering pizza um, and medicine. And I think what's really exciting is on the medicines front. Um, so one company, they're, um, they're testing delivery of um, AEDs for hearts. And so um, when you have a heart attack and time is of essence, they can deliver a defibrillator to you um, as soon as possible. And I'd be remiss if I didn't ask the crystal ball one last thing about air taxis in general. Just as I dream about this concept of a car landing in front of my house and me getting into it and then it, you know, having vertical takeoff and then taking me somewhere else and then landing, uh, how long till that's a reality? That's going to be a ways out. Uh, I think more than likely you're going to see the deliveries coming first, then maybe wider scale deployment of the cars. And then once there's acceptance of these types of technologies, you might see an air taxi someday. But I would say don't get your hopes up. It might be for, uh, well, maybe you don't need to get your hopes up because I don't know where you're going to be in 20 years. But I think 
more than likely the more affluent people are going to have access to those before the general public. Makes sense. Uh, gentlemen, I want to first of all say thank you so much for your time today. Uh, I found this very intriguing and exciting. Uh, and before we conclude, uh, I wanted to share with our listeners if uh, there's any additional resources or places where they can learn more, maybe, you know, a favorite book or a research paper or a website that either of you have frequented during the course of your uh, survey of these space. Any recommendations there? Kevin first, then Andy. No, I would say if you're interested in the topics, generally scan any publications out there today with the caveat that you need to do a second layer of research into what's going on. Most of the general periodicals out there today just cover at a high level what's going on, and there's actually more nuance to any of the deployments they're alluding to. I think the best research is to try it yourself. And so if there's any um, delivery sources in your city or town, or if there's anything that's coming near you, um, pick up your phone and, and try to hop on one of those. It's good advice. If I ever find uh, a way to get a taco delivered to my house, I will certainly do that autonomously. And then uh, if that works out well, I will assume that it's good enough for me and my family. Andy and Kevin, thank you both so much for your time. Again, we've been talking about autonomous delivery. To our listeners, thanks for listening. Uh, you can catch uh, more of our podcasts on our uh, website, itc.org. Um, and I'd like to say a special thank you to Kristen and Carrie, our producers in the studio today. And a very special thank you to Hardcast Media for letting us use their facilities and their hardware to record our podcast. Thanks again. Until next time. Mm-hmm.